No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me, on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. Pamela Cross is a feminist lawyer, a well-respected expert on violence against women and the law. She is revered for her work as a researcher, writer, educator, and trainer. She works with women's equality and violence against women's organizations across Ontario. Luke's Place is an award-winning nonprofit organization devoted to improving the safety and experience of women and their children as they proceed through the family law process after fleeing an abusive relationship. After leading the creation and expansion of legal programming and services at Luke's Place in her role as legal director, Pamela has moved her focus to advocacy and is now the Luke's Place Advocacy Director, developing and leading law and policy reform efforts and media work at the provincial and national levels. In 2022, Pamela participated in the inquest into the 2015 triple femicide of Carol Culleton, Anastasia Cusick, and Natalie Warmerden in Renfrew County, Ontario, both as an expert witness in her role as Luke's Place Legal Director and as an external consultant on behalf of the community. 86 recommendations came out of that inquest, and Pamela has created a toolkit for rural communities to enact change on the ground, some of them now. We talk about these resources and you can find them in the show notes. Pamela also participated in the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Inquiry as an expert witness on the intimate partner violence. That report is due out soon. A content warning for the episode. 
Today's episode contains material that might be difficult to hear for some. It talks about intimate partner violence and domestic violence against children. And while no details are discussed, it may be distressing to some. Pamela, thank you so much for joining me today. I am honored. Entirely my pleasure. This is a really important story for people everywhere, but I think especially for people in rural communities, because that's where the story began. Well, let's start at the beginning. Can you give us some of the details of of what prompted and sparked the inquest itself? The inquest that was held last June, so June of 2022, in Pembroke, which is in Renfrew County, was held because of murders that took place almost seven years before. On September 22nd, 2015, three women, Carol Culleton, Anastasia Kuzik, and Natalie Warmerdam, were all killed within the space of a couple of hours by one man who had had intimate relationships with two of the women and sought to have one with the third. Those deaths, of course, were, uh, were shocking uh, to the community. Uh, they generated some amount of media attention beyond the community, but as is often the way with stories that don't take place in large urban centers, uh, those stories disappeared into the back pages of newspapers and the final item on radio and television news stories fairly quickly. That was not the case for the people of Renfrew County or for people in surrounding counties, actually rural counties. Many people knew at least one of the women. Many people knew the perpetrator. Some people knew both. After the criminal proceedings, which took until the end of 2017 to be completed, and as a result of which the perpetrator was found guilty of two counts of second-degree murder, sorry, two counts of first-degree murder and one of second-degree murder, the coroner then was in the position to determine whether or not an inquest should be held into those deaths. Ontario has something called the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee, and I'm happy to talk a bit more about that in a couple of minutes if you'd like. That committee recommended to the coroner that there be an inquest because of the circumstances surrounding these deaths, in particular the fact that they happened in a rural area. The coroner followed that recommendation, and that's what took us up to the inquest that took place last June. There was one other little sort of piece in the story that's coincidental, really, um, but it does explain why it took so long to get to the inquest. And that's a question I heard a lot. Why are we having this inquest almost seven years after the murders? Well, we had COVID. It was very important, and I'm, and I'm so proud of the coroner's office for this. It was very important to the coroner's office that the inquest happened in person and happened in the community where the murders had taken place. In order for that to happen, it had to be delayed because, of course, there were all of those prohibitions on large gatherings and limitations on how people could get together and so on. So that has nothing to do with the deaths themselves, but it is part of the story about how we got to June of last year. How about the Ontario Death Review Committee? You mentioned it. And so while you're you know, continuing with the story, can you explain a bit about that, please? In 1998, a woman named Arlene May was murdered by her boyfriend, Randy Isles, who also killed himself. It was a murder that caught the public attention in a way that 
often intimate partner murders do not. The coroner of Ontario at that time decided that there needed to be what he called a super inquest to look at the particular circumstances of domestic violence deaths. And so an inquest was held into Arlene's murder. And coming out of it were, I believe, over 200 recommendations. Just four years later, another inquest was held. This one into the murder of a woman named Jillian Hadley, who was killed by her husband, who also killed himself. There were many more recommendations, many repeated recommendations, because a lot of what had come out of the Arlene May inquest had never been implemented. And one of the things that came out of the two of those inquests was that the province needed to establish some kind of committee that would examine these deaths as they happened, rather than requiring an inquest, which is a much bigger process, takes a lot more time, a lot more people, and so on. And so that's how Ontario's Domestic Violence Death Review Committee was established. It was at the time the only one in Canada. There are now a number of them across the country. It consisted of a number of experts. I, I can't remember exactly how many, but let's say somewhere around a dozen to 15 people who had expertise in different aspects of intimate partner violence and uh, the murders that all too often arise out of those cases. So between 2002 and the time of the inquest last June, so 20 years, that committee reviewed all domestic violence-related homicides. So let me just explain what that means, too. Where there was a known history or where there was some indicator in the homicide that there may have been a history of domestic violence, once any court proceedings, criminal court in particular, had been completed, the committee would look at all of the records relating to that particular death. That could include the killings of children if they happened in the context of domestic violence. One of the things that we know now is that all too often children become victims themselves, either because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time or because the abuser uses the killing of them as the ultimate punishment to their mother for leaving him, for telling people about the violence and so on. So the homicide, it doesn't have to be of the partner. It can be of the children or of another family member who's somehow involved because of the domestic violence. That committee produces regular reports in which it makes, much as inquests do, recommendations for systemic change. It can't result in somebody being criminally charged who hasn't already been charged. It's not about finding out uh, that somebody's guilty or anything like that. It's to say, okay, here's a death. What can we learn from it? What do systems need to do so it's less likely that the same kind of death will happen in the future? So Ontario has a vast number of recommendations sitting on the books coming out of first those two early inquests in 98 and 2002, but then from 20 years of work done by the Death Review Committee. One of the things that's really discouraging is to see how often the same or very similar recommendations are made over and over and over again. In other words, because neither the recommendations of inquest nor the recommendations from the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee carry with them any requirement that they be implemented. 
So you might ask yourself, why was there an inquest in this case if the committee was already doing its work? Well, when the committee looked at these three deaths, they were unusual. It isn't common, thankfully, that one person kills three former partners on the same day. The committee felt that was something that was worthy of the bigger or the deeper dig that an inquest can do. And the committee also felt that having looked at all of its work over the preceding 20 years, there had been insufficient attention paid generally to intimate partner violence, including homicide in rural communities. And so that's what led them to make the recommendation that there be an inquest. The committee continues with its work and will continue with its work. Its, its work is absolutely critical. I'm going to ask two things. So that committee, I'm going to guess, is funded by the Ontario government. Is that right? Yes? Yes. Okay. And so why then are there not checks and balances and accountability for these recommendations? You know where I'm going. So there's no obligation for anyone to implement these recommendations, although there are people and funding and resources going into investigating, uncovering these systemic issues, and there's nothing being done. And I herein lies perhaps your frustration. I'm just stating fact, perhaps. You are stating fact, and, and you are also stating something that is not just my frustration, but the frustration of many other people. If I put what you've said in the context of the inquest that, that we're talking about primarily today, one of the questions that I heard from people when I was in Renfrew County in the months and weeks leading up to the inquest because I was hired by the Women's Coalition there to come to Renfrew County, where I had worked uh, for many years, to hold consultations with the community and to hear from folks who lived there what the impact of those deaths had been and what they thought needed to change. So one of the things I heard again and again from the people who lived there was, well, why would we care? Why would we care to get involved with an inquest? Why would we want to, in effect, rip a Band-Aid off a wound that has barely begun to heal when there's no requirement that anybody do anything about what comes out of the inquest. And what could I say to that? I don't work for the coroner's office. I don't work for the government. I'm not a member of the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee. You know, I can't, I can't be a spokesperson for them. I was never an apologist for them. I'm an independent feminist advocate. But I share that frustration. And indeed, and perhaps we can talk more about this in greater detail a little bit later, one of the recommendations, the fifth of 86 recommendations that came out of the inquest was that an independent, essentially accountability committee, I think it's called an implementation committee, be established that would be made up of equal numbers of people within government who would know what was or was not going on, and community experts it would be chaired by an independent community expert who would have the jurisdiction to speak publicly. And that that implementation committee would oversee what the heck's happening with all these recommendations. We don't just want another 86 recommendations sitting on the shelf. If I can say just one other thing about the frustration, the jury in the inquest, there were five jury members, which is standard, they're regular folks. They're drawn from the community. They may never have thought about 
intimate partner violence before, or they may have. Uh, They may know the people involved, they may not. As many of your listeners will appreciate, in small communities, people tend to know one another. So there's not quite the same screening process as there would be for a criminal trial where, you know, they make sure nobody on the jury has ever met either the accused or the victim and so on. So these five jury members sat in the jury in the inquest room for three weeks, five days a week, basically eight hours a day, um, and listened to some pretty difficult evidence. And it was really powerful to see how quickly they too became frustrated about how often recommendations had been made in the past that might have saved the lives of these women. They might not. You never know for sure. And so these were folks who hadn't had any background in this area. You know, for for those of us who do this work, we're frustrated all the time because we're doing the work all the time and we see the failures over and over again. I wouldn't want to presume to know very much about the jurors. They're Identity is kept anonymous from us. We only ever knew them by number, one, two, three, four, and five. But I would wager a bet that most, if not all of them, came into that room kind of trusting in the systems that are there, the police, the courts, the government. And I don't think they felt that trust by the end of the inquest because they too moved to a place of great frustration. And that takes us to the very last recommendation. Recommendation number 86, in which the jury calls on the government or the coroner's office, that part's a little unclear to me, actually, to reconvene the parties to the inquest a year after the verdict was issued. So June of this year. So there could be a a reconnoitering, you know, how much has happened here? I think that's that's a very powerful recommendation. A couple of things. And this is just for clarity. The people that are chosen and then and and then screened for the jury selection do they need to be from the community or can they be from larger urban centers the reason i say that is and we'll talk about this a little bit later is it's very different with intimate violence cases in rural communities as opposed to an urban community and that understanding i think would be critical in making recommendations and understanding Um, So I just wanted to ask that little question. All of the jurors came from Renfrew County. And that that is typical in an inquest, that the jurors will be drawn from the community where the deaths happened. What I found very interesting during the inquest process, and just so your readers understand, I was there all day, every day. So I saw and heard everything that happened. These five folks who suddenly had to not go to their jobs or do what they normally did were absolutely dedicated. Um, They had a huge amount of reading to make their way through. They asked at the end of, I believe it was the first week, for permission from the uh, inquest presiding officer to take their binders home. Typically, they have to be left in the jury room because they needed more time to read everything in them. They came in there and to to do their jobs, in effect, and they really, really uh, did them with passion and commitment and uh, seriousness. And I think one of the really important things that they brought to that process was that they were people from that community and they were not experts on the topic. So they could look at it like a regular person and say, well, that is just flipping ridiculous. Why would that have been allowed to happen? Or why didn't somebody 
stop this thing from happening, right? You get too many experts around a table and everybody's got a reason why things happened or why they didn't happen. But when you've got people who are part of the community, they know what's realistic in their community. They know what the problems of their community are. They know what the strengths of their community are. And they also have that really important clarity of that just doesn't make sense. That's a stupid answer. And they were very assertive with people, with witnesses, if they thought they were getting a runaround. You know, they would just say, you haven't answered my question. That wasn't an answer to my question. I'll ask my question again. Because one of the things about an inquest is that the members of the jury can ask questions of the witness. Quite different from a trial. So your role was to observe? I had a few different roles. Okay. Can you explain that? (laughs) Yeah. I was initially hired by the Women's Coalition, as I mentioned, to come to the community before the inquest and hold consultations. I wrote a report of what I heard. And then I was called as a witness to present that report and take questions from the jury, from the presiding officer, from the lawyers, and so on. I was also hired by the coroner's office to prepare an expert report on intimate partner violence in Ontario with a focus on rural communities. So I wrote that report. I presented it as a witness. And then I uh, was hired in a second capacity by the Women's Coalition, which had funding from the Canadian Women's Foundation, to observe the inquest and to write a report about the inquest itself, the process, uh, my reflections on that. And what I did in that report was also create a toolkit so that other rural communities, women's organizations and other rural communities, if they're ever presented with a situation like this, can turn to that toolkit rather than sort of starting out at, you know, ground zero. There are tips in there about how to deal well with the media. There are um, sort of Q&As about how should you make a decision whether to seek standing? What does it mean to have standing? How do you hire a lawyer? How do you cross-examine? And so on. So I, I had three or four different hats on. And a career's worth of experience to implement into those roles. I didn't realize you had all of those hats to wear. And that that's a heavy responsibility, so I can't imagine. It was, I think, after decades of doing this work and feeling that it's all been really valuable, it's all been really important. For me, the inquest was probably the most powerful piece of, of work I've done. Because it it was an intersection of the very individual and personal because it was about these three women. And we never forgot. We said their names again and again and again, very intentionally. So it was an integration or an intersection of that and then all of the systemic pieces that surrounded that. And I think that was what, for for many of us who were involved with it, certainly for me, um, made it such a profoundly powerful experience. There's a big difference. Um, I alluded to it between, and and not to minimize anyone's uh, intimate partner violence experience, but there are differences between those in rural communities and urban communities. What would you say are some of those differences that um, maybe folks listening from an urban center wouldn't think about? There are a lot of differences. 
Um, and people who want to explore this further, I would encourage them to read a resource that I co-authored in my work with Luke's Place called Going the Distance, which looks at intimate partner violence in rural communities and, and sort of elaborates in greater detail than I can do here on some of the differences. I'm going to put guns first, not necessarily because I think that's the most important difference, because, but because it's one that I think for urban dwellers is often not considered. Guns play a very different role in rural communities than they do in urban communities. I live in a city right now. There's absolutely no reason for me to have a gun, right? And I don't. <laughs> uh, but if I lived in the country, there would be many reasons for me to have a gun. If I had a farm, I might need it to uh, end the life of a farm animal. I might need it to deal with varmints in the barn. I might need it because I hunt and, and by hunting, accumulate meat for my family to eat over the winter. But those guns in rural homes, of course, can also be used to threaten and to kill. The rate of use of guns in domestic homicides in rural settings is 12% higher than it is in the city. So it's considerably higher. But they aren't just used to kill. They're also used as threats. The gun might just be sitting around. The abuser might pull the gun out and start to clean it uh, during an argument with his spouse. Uh, might, you know, jingle the bullets around in his pocket if he's saying to her, you know, where were you this afternoon and why didn't you answer your phone when I called? We know countless stories about how guns are used without ever being fired in a way that establishes and maintains the abuser's power and control. One of the other challenges is what do you do about those guns? If the abuser is charged it, it, with something that's related to intimate partner violence, the gun will usually be taken away, or at least it will be ordered that it be taken away. There's a, a breakdown, and, and this came up in the inquest, although guns weren't really an issue in this particular case. There was a lot of discussion about guns. Sometimes there's a bit of a break between that uh, bail condition or probation order saying that he needs to turn over his firearms and anybody actually collecting them. Sometimes there's a bit of time and, you know, maybe a few guns go over to his brother's place and the police come and they collect what's remaining, but there's still a few over there that he can have access to. Sometimes a neighbor or a brother or a sister is willing to loan a gun, even knowing about the, the family violence background. You know, what are you going to say? I, I've got a fox who keeps getting in the chicken house. I, I got to shoot it. Can I borrow your gun just for a day? That can happen. But then there's this other challenge that comes up. And in some rural communities, when it's hunting season, even if the abuser has had to turn over their firearms, they're allowed to have them back for hunting season. So there are all kinds of holes, you know, even once you get the guns out of the way. In this case, the perpetrator had twice previously had firearms bans implemented against him, but nobody ever collected his firearms acquisition certificate. So he, he didn't, in this case, use it, but he had it. <laughs> and if he had gone into a gun store and shown it, nobody there would have known that he was under a gun ownership prohibition. 
So you see, that's one. That's just one of the many differences. Let me touch on a couple more. Um, I know we have other things to talk about, but it, it sounds so obvious uh, that it, it maybe feels foolish to say it, but the long distances for folks in rural communities are a huge challenge. If I live in a city, I can get to my neighbor's house probably in a minute if I really need to flee and get somewhere safe quickly. Even if I don't know my neighbor, I can go screaming up their sidewalk or pounding on their apartment door, right? It gets me out of the immediacy of the abuse. I can probably also get to more formal help pretty quickly. If I live in a city, there's public transportation to help get me there. But if I'm living on a farm, I don't have access to the family vehicle or I don't know how to drive, whatever. There's no bus at the end of my driveway. Maybe my driveway is two miles long, one mile long. There's no neighbor who I can see from my house who I can yell loud enough to attract their attention. Obviously, in rural communities, there are fewer services because there's fewer people and because there's a lower tax base. And, and that leads me to another real challenge in rural communities, and it's this. Governments do not recognize the different realities of rural communities, either their strengths or their challenges. And one of the ways that's a problem is that when it comes to services like shelters, counseling centers, and others, the same funding formula is used to determine how much money the provincial government provides to those services, as is used in urban centers, and it doesn't work. Because the population base is lower, those organizations get less money. But they have expenses that urban services don't have. They like to be able to assist women by covering the cost of getting them there. Their worker may need to travel long distances to assist a woman, whereas in an urban center, that's not a reality. You know, we could spend the whole time we have together talking about the differences between urban and rural communities. Those are just a few of them. But I want to say something else before we move on, because one of the things that happens all too often, and I know that you know this, and it's not it's not what you want to do, and it's not what I want to do, is we list all the deficits. There are huge strengths in rural communities, too. When you know your neighbors, that can operate both ways. It can be a negative, uh, because you might be embarrassed by what's happening in your family and not want your neighbors to know. But it can also be a plus. There are many, many strengths. One of the things I saw during the inquest and that I have seen since the inquest related to the recommendations is that much more so than urban centers, rural communities are prepared to say, okay, we've had enough of this. We want to make our communities safer for women and children. We're not waiting for anybody at the legislature to tell us they're going to fix things. We'll figure it out. And we'll figure it out in a way that works for us. So yeah, there's lots of challenges and barriers, but there's huge strengths there too. Well, that's a nice segue into 86 recommendations. People will say, and this is often the case with trying to make systemic change, people will say, that's way too many. Where do I begin? Where do I start? And so you've developed this toolkit, which we will share in, this, in the show notes, and people can access that freely and easily. But can you give those community members that are listening that want to make a positive change and a positive difference. What are some of those things that they don't need 
to wait for, to, to move slowly through an already flawed system to implement and make change. One of the great things about these 86 recommendations is that there are a number that individuals or organizations or communities can dig right into. And the first one is the very first recommendation. This recommendation was made to the province, but there is absolutely no reason that a town, a township, or a county couldn't do this. And that is to declare that intimate partner violence is an epidemic. It is an epidemic. 52 women killed in Ontario last year. That's one a week, just in Ontario. Since the inquest, two women have been killed in Renfrew County alone. And when we talk about intimate partner violence, yes, it's important to talk about the women who die, but we also need to talk about the thousands of women who don't die. It is an epidemic. Approximately 44% of women in this country will be subjected to intimate partner violence at some point in their life. That's almost half of us. Police reported intimate partner violence is 75% higher in rural communities than in urban communities. Now, that's just police reported. There's lots that isn't. But, you know, the numbers are staggering. And it's, it's too, really, in a way, overwhelming to just run through a whole long list of statistics. People stop listening. Um, but that's all information that people can find in the various links to resources that you're going to provide to them. So it should be declared an epidemic. One county has already done that, Lanark County in eastern Ontario. The director of the shelter went to the first meeting following the municipal election of her county council. She talked about the work of her organization. She talked about the statistics in her community. And before that meeting was over, the county council had passed unanimously a resolution to declare intimate partner violence an epidemic. Now other communities are talking about doing the same thing. And one of the things you'll find in the toolkit is a little outline of how they did it in Lanark County so that the next county doesn't have to start from scratch. They can pick up and, and use some of what was successful in Lanark County. So that's one recommendation that people can move on at a very local level. Another one is the 10th recommendation. Shortly after the present government was elected, it implemented a piece of legislation called Safer Communities. It had a whole lot of stuff in it. Um, but one of the things in it was that every municipality had to develop a community safety and well-being plan. Many communities have done that. Many of them focus on some of the obvious things like reducing the rate of vandalism, uh, car theft, graffiti, home break-ins. Why not put intimate partner violence into those plans? And that was, as I say, the 10th recommendation from the jury. Once again, Lanark County built that into their safety plan from the beginning. But it's not too late. Those plans get reviewed on an annual basis. Intimate partner violence could be added. Again, in the toolkit, you'll find a, a tip sheet on how to do that in your community. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to have a background in violence against women. You don't ever have to have been to a, a municipal meeting. If you're interested in this and concerned about it, that toolkit will walk you through exactly how to proceed. 
Something else that we've seen people starting to act on and, and that certainly other communities can without needing a direction from above, so to speak, is coming up with more effective ways to share information about these situations in a way that protects people's privacy because that's important, but also increases the ability to do effective safety planning for women and children. Um, that there's an organization, a provincial organization called Building a Bigger Wave, which brings together all of the Violence Against Women coordinating committees in Ontario. And they're just about to release a short FAQ tool that talks to people about what does the law say? Because, you know, there's all this privacy legislation. Let's be honest. Most of us don't really know exactly what it says. Uh, I'm going to grossly oversimplify it here and say that for the most part, what that legislation says is you don't get to share personal information about somebody else without their permission, unless to do so would, in, would increase the safety of somebody. So there actually is quite a lot of leeway for information sharing. And often people are frozen because they're afraid, oh, God, I'm not supposed to tell anybody anything. Well, sure, you don't get to go you know, into the grocery store and start talking in a loud voice about a woman in the shelter so that she's identified to other people. But that's very different from sitting down as part of a team saying, how do we build a safety plan for this woman and sharing information? So that's something that not only it is possible for people to be doing at the community level, regardless of whether these recommendations are implemented or not, um, but it's something that people have been starting to do since the inquest, there's been a, a renewed commitment to finding ways to make our community collaborations work even better than they have in the past. So those are a few ideas. Uh, as you said, some, some of the recommendations are much bigger picture items that will require study, will probably require um, a certain amount of expertise to be brought in to look at them. But there are quite a number that people could be working on right now. This is an inquest and recommendations. It's a form of oppression, obviously, intimate partner violence. And we have the TRC calls to action. We have the missing and murdered Indigenous women calls to action. And this. And I think living in this time, whether you're rural or urban, you cannot ignore what is happening. And it is our responsibility to at least read and understand as much as we can how we can implement change. So I want to ask, what is your hope uh, with this toolkit and with all of these recommendations, speaking to the people that might be listening, you know, in rural or MPPs, uh, MPs, folks that can move things along, what are you hoping will be the outcome? It might sound like an odd thing to say after we've talked about an inquest that looked at the completely needless and preventable deaths of three wonderful women. But I actually feel more hopeful right now than I have for a long time. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, some of them are built on things that sound negative, but then you look at them through a different lens and find a place to have hope. One of the really interesting realities about the time we're living in right now is that the pandemic 
resulted in the rates of intimate partner violence going through the roof, largely because of public policy that made sense from a medical perspective. Shelter at home, don't send your kids to school. But it meant that women in relationships uh, where they were being abused were now with that abuser 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So rates of violence went up all around the world, not just here. Femicide or domestic homicide rates went up. The media paid more attention to the issue than it ever has before. And as a result of that, public awareness increased. And as a result of that, politicians began to realize they had to do something. So by the time the inquest happened, it felt like the ground had been tilled, if I can put it like that. Now we have these 86 recommendations. They come on top of, as you have said, uh, recommendations with respect to missing and murdered Indigenous women. Following soon from those recommendations, we're going to see recommendations coming out of the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission. And while that was a commission that looked at much more than intimate partner violence, it looked very closely at the relationship between intimate partner violence, because the perpetrator of the mass killings had also been abusive to his partner. So what was the link between the intimate partner violence and what followed? It's a very interesting time. One more piece that I add is that the federal government has made a commitment, as yet not fully implemented, to implement a national action plan to end violence against women and gender-based violence and have signed uh, contracts, I guess you could say, with the provinces and territories to begin to flow some money to support such a national action plan coming into effect. So we have a lot of pieces in play, more, I feel like, than ever before in the time that I've been doing this work which is what leads to my sense of hopefulness. I also feel hope because of individuals. You know, one of Natalie Warmerdam's children, now a young adult, a teenager at the time of uh, their mother's murder, was a party at the inquest and spoke powerfully, compassionately about what needs to happen. I think about a woman like Jennifer Kagan, whose daughter Kira was killed three years ago today, the day that we're recording this podcast, um, by her father during an access visit that should never have happened. And Jennifer has never stopped calling for systemic change to make sure that children aren't hurt in the context of a man who really wants to continue to abuse his wife by taking away her child. I mean, I could list countless, countless numbers of women. I also take huge hope from the response I've seen to the inquest recommendations. I spent much of October and November traveling from one small community to another in Ontario, having been invited there by communities to talk about the inquest and to to answer their question, what can we do? To me, this is democracy as it's meant to be. It's not marching off to some ballot box once every four years. It's people saying, what can we do? So there's, for me, there's lots of reasons to feel hopeful and your listeners don't know me. They need to know that I can be pretty cynical and I can be pretty filled with a sense of despair. But right now I don't feel like that. Okay, so what is it I'm hoping for? I'm not hoping for all 86 of these recommendations to be implemented. That would be insanity. 
What I am hoping for is that we get some kind of movement on even, even a dozen of them, you know? Declaring intimate partner violence an epidemic doesn't cost a penny, but it would mean a lot, symbolically and practically. Ensuring that communities include intimate partner violence in their community safety and well-being plans, that's really important. One recommendation we haven't talked about, the fifth recommendation to establish a provincial implementation committee, that would be very important. There's a recommendation to create a provincial position of survivor advocate, somebody who would make sure that things were working the way they should for survivors of gender-based violence, whatever systems they turn to, healthcare, legal, like criminal law, family law, you name it. We need to look at things we've done in the past to see if they're still working. So I would love to see this government implement the recommendation that calls for a review of mandatory charging. I think we need to make sure that our privacy legislation, which is so important, allows information to be shared when doing so could save a life. Those are things that I would, I feel hopeful could happen and that I think would substantially improve the situation for women who are in relationships where they're being subjected to abuse and for women who leave or try to leave those relationships. One thing to remember about Carol, Anastasia, and Natalie is that they all chose not to remain involved with this perpetrator. They were safe. I put that word in quotation marks, but they were safe as long as they stayed with him. We need to fully understand that for most women, the most dangerous time is when they leave a relationship of abuse. Because the perpetrator of that of abuse does not want to let go. And sometimes for him, the only way to hold on is to kill her. I think that is a perfect place to leave our conversation for now. But thank you so much for, I, I could ask you a million more questions. <laughs> However, we'll leave lots of resources for folks um, to I can think of committees on municipalities. You don't have to be a sitting counselor. You can be part of a committee and bring it up. Yep. If you're listening, you hear this, ask, how can I help? What can I do? So thank you for all of the work that you do. This is so important what you're doing. And I'm sure that you have more topics than you can cover in the amount of time that you can dedicate to this. But Maybe we should revisit this in six months. You yes, know? please. We'll see what the government has done. June is the first anniversary. I think there's going to be a bunch of noise made by women in Pembroke on the 28th of June. So why I would really like to stay in touch and do a follow-up because this isn't a story that is going to end, right? Yes, absolutely. Please, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. I will put it in my calendar right now. So thank and you I will so too. much. Well, listen, Shauna, thank you so much for reaching out. I think what you're doing is fantastic. Thank you. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. 
The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 